Let's pray. Come, Lord, no longer tarry. Bring your promises to pass. Lord, we long to see your promises come to full fruition. We are confident that your power will indeed carry us through to the end. But God, the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire against against us. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour our faith. God, our strength to hold on to your promises on our own is weak and frail. And so I pray, Lord, that as we dig into your word and as we behold in your word the beauty of your truth and the beauty of your all-satisfying goodness, would you help us to cling to your promises that you will indeed satisfy your people? Would you help us to cling to your promise that you do indeed save those who are in need, rescuing us and bringing us in to your heavenly kingdom? Would you help us see these things as we approach your word now? And would you change us into the image of Christ, we pray. In his name, amen. Amen, friends. Exodus chapter 20, we are in the last of our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. We are continuing still in Catechism Sundays, although it's been Catechism Sunday rather than once a month. Every day for the last six weekends, right? As we've worked through these commandments, it's been a joy to work through them with you. If nothing else, maybe you know the Ten Commandments a little better now. And that's a good thing. I, tell, I can tell you that I do. I pray, though, that God has helped you see how these commandments teach us so much about him and his character and the hope we have in Jesus I want to start as we've been starting with reciting the Ten Commandments from the New City Catechism question number eight. So Sojourners Church, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. These commandments, we are finishing off today with studying, you shall not give false testimony, and you shall not covet. And as we wrap up this series through the Ten Commandments, I want to remind us, why are we studying these Ten Commandments? We talked about this at the beginning, and we've seen it throughout, that as we study God's Word in the Ten Commandments, we learn what God is like. We learn what God is like, first of all. We learn His character from how He commands and orders His people to be, right? Not only do we learn what God is like, though, we learn how these commandments point us to Jesus. They tell us about how Jesus himself would live in fulfillment of all righteousness. And they tell us about what Jesus himself would do because of God's character expressed in these commandments and how his people 
violated these commandments and needed a savior that fulfilled them and that taught his people how to do these things. We not only learn that, but we learn how to live a life then of God-centered love. Remember, all of the commandments are summed up in the command to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so through these commandments, we learn what a life of love of God and neighbor looks like. That's what we're aiming for as we study these commandments. We've talked as we've gone through, and I apologize here, my, I forgot the iPad today and my phone is not changing these things. Oh, there we go. No, that's okay. We'll see if we can get my phone to connect. So bear with me for a sec because... It is much easier to walk through this with you guys. We have the slides up as we're doing this sermon series so that as we go through scripture rather rapidly, we don't have to spend time turning there. Otherwise, we would be here for two hours or so because we'd have to get to all the scriptures. So the hope is that this can help you guys see the scriptures and see, again, as we're going through these catechism questions, see that these are faithful summaries of God's word. And as you see that, See that not only from me saying it, but see that from the scripture itself. Because we want to not just rely on the catechism itself, but we want to go back to God's word. The catechism is summarizing for us what God's word says. There we go. I think I'm in business now. So we talked about at the beginning of this series when we wanted to study the Old Testament law, right? The Ten Commandments. We talked about these three steps towards exegesis or understanding what God's word is saying to us. We talked about needing to think about and establish the original meaning and the purpose of the law. Why was it given to God's people? And we talked also about determining the theological significance of the law. What does it tell us about God and his ways? How does Christ fulfill this law? You remember that little lens diagram, right? How does Christ fulfill this law? How does it change as it goes through Jesus? And then we talked about summarizing the lasting significance of the law for today. What does this law teach us about what a life of love looks like? So we're going to think about those things again as we think about both the commandment to not bear false witness and the commandment to not covet. These are found in Exodus chapter 20, which is why I asked you to open there. Exodus chapter 20, verses 16 to 17, God's word says this. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We're going to start looking, first of all, at the commandment not to bear false witness. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What we see if we look at the broader context of scripture is that This command not to bear false witness is first of all talking about a courtroom or legal proceeding context. Not bearing false witness, in other words, in a court, like we would think if you were called to testify and you lied about what you had seen. That's bearing false witness. Bearing false witness is talked about in Exodus 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So again, this is talking about when someone has a a, a grievance against someone else in the people of God, and they bring it to the judges, 
And the judges look for witnesses about what happened. This is a command. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie about what you saw. Lie about what you happened. Don't do this in an attempt to pervert justice. But we know from the broader context of God's word also that God not only prohibits lying in a courtroom, but he prohibits lying in general, right? This extends beyond just bearing that false witness in a legal proceeding to lying more generally or gossiping or slandering. In texts like Leviticus 19.11, you shall not steal, you shall not do falsely, you shall not lie to one another. Or Leviticus 19.16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Or, Levit- or excuse me, Exodus 23.1, as we saw before, you shall not spread a false report, right? Gossiping, lying, slander, all of these kind of ways that we spread falsehood in the community of God. And God is saying, you must not do these things. So to bear false witness, what we are prohibited from doing in God's command is prohibited from lying both inside and outside a courtroom. Why would God give this law? Why would he highlight this in the Ten Commandments? That's the question we want to ask when we think about purpose. We see from Exodus 23, a little bit further down, even in verses 6 and 7, this call to not pervert justice. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. In other words, one of the reasons God gave this command to his people is because God, in his wisdom, as he gathered his people, his covenant people, under King Yahweh, wanted to have justice done in his land. He wanted to have just courts, just legal proceedings. He wanted them to be reliable so that if his people had a grievance, they could take it and get it taken care of in a court of law. Not only that, though, we see from Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 to 19, after God is talking about how many witnesses are required in a court proceeding, and he talks about if you're a false witness, what you intended to have done to the to the perpetrator is going to be done to you. He says this in Deuteronomy 19, 18 to 19. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, so then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, God is maintaining this just court system, and not only that, but through that, he's maintaining the purity of his people. His people have been called, set apart as holy, and having a court system that is corrupt and full of false witnesses and brings false charges against people and perverts the justice due to anyone who comes to God crying for justice is an evil in the midst of his people, and he wants to purge this evil from his people. But these aren't the only reasons that God brings this about in his people. If we think about him and his ways, we see a a little bit bigger reason. Why would God care so much about having justice among his people and having a just court system among his people? I think at least one of the reasons why God cared so much about this is because God himself is just and brings justice and testifies against the guilty and his testimony is true. And guess what happens all the way through the Old Testament? He testifies against the guilty and guess who the guilty are? His people, Israel, who's gathered together in the land and has violated his covenant. God, in other words, is bringing testimony and charges against his people 
And he wants his people used to fairness in legal proceedings so that they see that when he brings a testimony and says, you have violated my covenant, he's not lying. He's telling the truth. And they ought to receive that and believe. We see, for example, in Psalm 50, verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Or in Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. As God's people sat in exile, that was the question. Does God not hear? Does he not care? Can he not help? Isaiah is saying, no, that's not the case. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, one of the main roles of prophets in the Old Testament was testifying in a legal way against God's people for breaking his covenant. They would say as witnesses, here is what you have done, O Israel. Here is how you have broken God's covenant. And here's why these judgments have fallen on you. And if God's people were used to false witnesses being tolerated, would they believe the prophets? No, they would expect them to distort the truth. So God is trying to uphold this image of a just and true legal proceeding. Jeremiah testifies against God's people in that way. He says this in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 4 to 9. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Every dece- everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them, for what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? This is the testimony of God to his people through his prophets as witnesses. And God intends for this testimony to be believed and taken seriously. God always speaks truth and wants his people to reflect that truth, right? Even like we read in the call to worship this morning that God himself hates lying lips. All of these things are so that his people will hear the truth, will believe the truth, And then we'll respond to the truth, right? Repent and be rescued. Turn from their deceiving ways is what Jeremiah is calling them to do, is what Isaiah was calling them to do, is what the psalmist was calling them to do in Psalm 50. God wants his people to hear the truth, believe it, and respond. So much so, in fact, that he sent his star witness in the line of the prophets to testify to his people. His star witness, if you might guess, is Jesus Christ himself, right? God sent Jesus to bear witness to his people's unfaithfulness. Jesus says in uh, the gospel writes in Mark 1, 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What did he say when he proclaimed that? Saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent that you have turned from God and his ways and trust him. The same call that the prophets were calling, Jesus called. 
John 7, 7 says that the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that his works are evil. See, all through scripture, these prophets are testifying. And then ultimately, Jesus is testifying. He sent as God's star witness to testify and confront an ancient lie that God's people have been believing all along. Since the garden, God's people have been believing an ancient lie that Jesus came to confront. We'll see more about that lie as we turn to look at commandment number 10 about covenant. Let's do that now. Back in Exodus 20, the second half of verse 17, we read, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. We're told not to covet. But covet might be an unfamiliar term for you. If it isn't, that's great. But if it is, coveting simply means to desire. You can covet wrongly, but you can also covet rightly. We kind of have a negative connotation of the word covet, and that's okay, but we don't really have that negative a connotation of the word desire, right? You can have good desires and bad desires. Not all desires are bad. We see in scripture, places like Genesis chapter 2 verse 9, that when God created the garden, he planted these trees, and the trees were pleasant to the sight. Same, same idea there, same word behind covet or desire. These trees were to be coveted, were to be desired because they were pleasant for the sight and good for food. Or in Psalm 19.10, when it, the Bible is talking about God's word, it says that God's word, his commandments, his laws, his rules, his statutes, they are more to be desired than gold. More to be coveted after, more to be sought after, more to be longed after than gold. Or much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Or in Isaiah 53, verse 2, when Isaiah is describing the suffering servant, who we learn later in Scripture is Jesus Christ himself, one of the things he says about him is he had no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, it would have been, we should have desired him, but we didn't because he didn't look desirable. But the desire itself would have been good. So not all desires is bad. Not all desiring is bad. But there are kinds of desiring. There are kinds of coveting that is bad, right? Exodus chapter 20, we read about coveting anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting something that does not belong to you. Desiring what God has granted your neighbor, in other words, is bad. Desiring what God has given you as a good gift is good. Desiring God himself is good. Desiring what God has given your neighbor is bad. Desiring things contrary to God's law is also bad. God had told his people that they will be his people, he will be their God, and he will reign over them as king. And we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 8, one of the things that happens in the course of the history of God's people, one of the ways they reject him, is they desire a king like the nations. Samuel is complaining about this after the elders come to him. The elders come to him first, 1 Samuel Chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, and then 7 and 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. So what God's people had done is they looked around at the nations, their neighbors, and said, They have kings. They have like human being kings that that judge them and that rule them. That seems good to us. We want that too. 
Israel coveted what their neighbors had, and they called out, they cried out to God's prophets for it, like Samuel. And Samuel got upset about this, and God told him, don't worry, it's not that they're rejecting you, he said. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This kind of coveting, this kind of desiring, contrary to God's will, is not good. This is the kind of desiring that God forbids in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. John Calvin, in his Institutes, summarizes this as any desire that's contrary to love. God forbids, in the Tenth Commandment, any desire that's contrary to love. So we are called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. Any desire that you have that is contrary to those is coveting, is evil, is wicked, is something that you ought not to desire. What we see in this commandment is that the the desire itself is not what's bad, but the object of the desire, where it's pointed, is wicked, right? We saw this also in the first commandment, didn't we? In the second commandment, when we're called to not have any other gods besides Yahweh, and when we're called not to make an idol, those actions reveal, if we violate those commandments, they reveal a heart that's desiring apart from God, contrary, right, to the command to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's idolatry. Coveting is a form of idolatry. Paul says this explicitly in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, that coveting, which is idolatry, he says, it's an anthropological idolatry or dealing with human beings, dealing with people. In God's law, he forbids idolatry that worships a different God, right? But he also forbids idolatry that worships one another, that worships something that someone else has that you don't have. God forbids this kind of desiring focused on the wrong object. And this kind of desiring is a repetition of the ancient lie that Christ came to confront. It's an ancient lie that goes all the way back to the garden. If we think about it, this lie goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. God had put Adam and Eve in the garden, giving giving them these trees that were desirable for food, giving them everything they needed, satisfying them fully, giving Adam and Eve even each other to enjoy. And then Satan came along and convinced them with a particular lie. Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw, after Satan tempted her, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In the garden, Adam and Eve coveted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the wisdom that it granted. They were convinced That desire, contrary to God's will, would satisfy them. This is the lie that they believed that satisfaction is found apart from God. That happiness is found apart from God. That God himself cannot satisfy. They believed that and so they reached out and took. They acted on their covetous desires. James talks about the progression of sin that same way when he says in verse Uh, Chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan tempted them. Their desire pulled them along. They took and sinned. And it led to exile from the garden and ultimately death, right? Death for them and death for all mankind. Because they believed this lie that God does not satisfy, that happiness is not found in him. All through the scripture, God continues to testify to his people to contradict this lie. To testify to his people to rectify this lie. To tell them the truth that he indeed does satisfy. In fact, satisfaction is only found in him. This is the testimony of scripture. Even just a couple places. Isaiah 30 verse 15. Israel is being assaulted by the armies of Assyria and they're scared. And so they look around them and they see that Egypt has a bunch of chariots. And they've been told not to go to Egypt. They've been told not to trust in them, not to seek help from them. But they covet what their neighbors have because they believe the lie that God cannot deliver. And they're ultimately judged for it. God tells them through the prophet Isaiah, Thus says the Lord, Isaiah thirty fifteen, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, Isaiah says. He's explaining to them why they weren't rescued, why this failed. Instead, God made their horses slow and they were taken into exile. Psalm 145 talks about God this way as well. The whole psalm does, but especially verses 16 to 20. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. Scripture consistently testifies that true satisfaction is found only in God. So God forbids coveting explicitly to try to teach his people that their desires must be restrained and directed at the proper object or it will not be satisfied. No amount of coveting after what a neighbor has will satisfy our hearts. No amount of seeking something contrary to God's will will satisfy your souls. God forbids coveting and exhorts his people to find true satisfaction in him. And he does this to expose this original lie of Satan. To say that no, satisfaction is not found apart from me. When Jesus comes and he bears this true witness about his people calling them to repent. He comes and confronts this lie. That satisfaction and salvation are found apart from God. The work of Jesus is all about exposing this lie. Jesus exposed the lie that disordered desires satisfy by telling the truth about our desires and about God's satisfaction. And what did the world do with that? They killed him for it, right? Jesus came to bear true witness and the world committed murder against him. Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, which he coveted. From his neighbor, right? Judas thought his satisfaction would be in 30 pieces of silver instead of in a savior. And so he betrayed Christ. And even as Jesus was put on trial 
It was not the kind of just, fair trial that Israel was called to give. We see in Matthew 25, verses 59 to 60, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Jesus himself lived perfectly according to the law, and there was nothing to accuse him of. And yet, God's very people who were told not to bear false witness sought out false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. And they ultimately did. They were successful in putting him to death. And for a time, it looked like the lie had won. It looked like God had been proven wrong, that he is not really faithful to his people to keep his promises. But we know, because we live on this side of the cross, that that's not the end of the story, right? Even though Jesus came to testify against this lie and to tell the truth, and God's people put him to death for it, we know that by God's power he was raised from the dead. This resurrection from the dead testifies that what Jesus says is true. Acts Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24 and verse 36 Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus paid with his life to testify to the reality that anything apart from God, desires contrary to God, coveting what your neighbor has, idolatry, none of these will satisfy the longing in your soul, but these will ultimately lead you to murder. Right? Just like they did David, who saw Bathsheba across bathing and coveted his neighbor's wife and brought her over and then slept with her, committed adultery, which led then him to him murdering Uriah. Right? That's what will happen if we pursue our own self-centered desires apart from Christ and believe the lie that satisfaction is found apart from God. That's what Jesus came to testify, that that does not satisfy, that that ultimately leads to death. But that Jesus and his trust in God and through him our trust in God leads to life. This is what these commandments teach. In summary of these commandments, the ninth commandment requires that we do not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love. Right? That's, we can see that clearly. You must not bear false witness. Do not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love. And the tenth commandment requires that we are content, not envying Anyone are resenting what God has given them or us. Which leads us to our love principles from these commandments. What we see in these commandments is that, first of all, to love God and neighbor, we must love the truth. We must not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love to our neighbor. To love God and neighbor, we must love the truth. And to love God and neighbor, we must be content. I want to unpack these a little bit for us. First of all, we must love the truth, to love God and neighbor. We must love the truth. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and we're called to speak the truth in love, right? Then in our heart, we have to love the truth. 
In our heart, we have to love the truth. And what we see when we read scripture and hear Christ's call and testimony is this fundamental truth in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, the first truth that we're confronted with, that we have to learn to love and believe, is the truth about our neighbors and ourselves, that we are all sinners. That we are all sinners in need of saving. That the call to repent and believe in the gospel is a call to all of us. Not a call to the especially wicked, but a call to all of us. We are all sinners in need of saving, and we must accept that truth. If you do not, if you deny that truth, then you cannot and do not love the truth. This is easier to accept about others than it is to accept about ourselves, isn't it? It's pretty easy for me to believe that others are sinful. It's a little harder for me to believe that I am sinful myself. But we must learn to accept that truth. The problem is we so often suppress that truth in our unrighteousness, right? Romans 1.8 has a whole long string of what's plainly known about God, evidence to us, and yet we take and we distort and deny the truth. We bear false witness about it. We suppress it. We lie to ourselves about it. If we lie to ourselves about the truth, though, then God's law is not in us. We see in Romans 7 that the function of this law that God has given us, one of the functions is to prevent us from being able to suppress the truth, to prevent us from being able to lie about the truth. Paul reflects on it in Romans 7, Verse 7, when he says this, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment become sinful beyond measure. That's a mouthful, but what it means is that the law was given to God's people and to us. To show us the sinfulness of sin. To testify to the truth that in spite of our attempts to suppress the truth in our unrighteousness, we cannot when we behold God's law. We either have to reject completely any mention of God or we have to accept that he has commanded us to do things like do not covet. That we have consistently done and broken. We must accept the truth that we are all sinners. That our desires are ultimately disordered and contrary to love. This is a question that we all have to be confronted with. That 1 John tells us that if we deny the truth of this question, we don't have the truth in us. If we say we are without sin, we lie and deceive ourselves, John says. So friends, the first question for us this morning is, will we love the truth or continue to lie? Continue to suppress the truth. Continue to deny that we have any need of a savior. It starts there. Love of the truth has to start there. Accepting this truth looks like responding like Paul did, I believe. Paul responded in Romans 7, 21 to 24. 
I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He knows his own sinfulness. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? That's what it looks like to acknowledge that we are all sinners. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Or Isaiah, when he enters into the throne room of God in Isaiah 6, he says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Right? Or any number of times that the disciples start to get close to realizing who Jesus is, and they fall down in terror because of their own sinfulness. Accepting the truth looks like wretched man that I am who will deliver me. This might not seem like a lovely truth. How can we learn to love a truth that is so harsh? If this were all there was to the truth, I think that would be a valid objection. But we know there is not only this to the truth. Jesus came to testify not just that we ought to repent, but that we ought to repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came to testify and show us that the truth is actually better than the lie. That the good news of the gospel is not just, is not just what we wish were true, but is actually true. The good news of the gospel is not a fiction, but it's a promise. It's better news. It's better truth that God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. This is where Paul goes right after this, right? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I, in myself, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. In other words we have this precious and very great promise that if God is for us in Christ Jesus no one can be against us. There is no condemnation that can be brought on you and I for all of the lies, all of the coveting, all of, all of the adulterous thoughts, all of the murderous thoughts, all of the stealing, all of the denying God's Sabbath, all of the refusal to honor our parents, all of those things, all, all of our false worship. There is no condemnation that can be brought on those who are in Christ Jesus. This truth is better than a lie that says that you have no reason to be condemned in the first place, right? Because your conscience will creep up on you and will catch up and God's law has been given to show the sinfulness of your sin. And if you refuse to acknowledge that, then your only hope is that you can keep pretending until you die. But if you give up pretending and you embrace the truth, then you learn that the truth is so much sweeter and richer and better than we could have possibly hoped for. That Jesus Christ himself gave himself for us and gave us his spirit so that through him, the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us. And there is no condemnation. We are sinners 
in need of a savior, but God provided a better savior. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel that Jesus calls us to believe. This is tied, I believe, to our contentment. Because what we must learn now to do, which I think in some ways is almost, at least for me in my heart, harder than accepting the fact that I am a sinner, is accepting the fact that I'm still a sinner in need of grace. Right? What, what the gospel calls us to, the truth that the gospel gives, is that Jesus Christ has forgiven us and provided a way, and there is now no condemnation, but we still function like Paul. Right? There's a, there's, there's a war in our body to want to love the law of God, but then want to turn away and, and satisfy our desires somewhere else. And think that, think that the lie is maybe still a little bit true. We are a grace-dependent people, and that is what we must learn to be content with. Being content with needing a Savior. We don't want to need Jesus so badly. Maybe you, maybe you do, maybe you're fine with it. I find that in my own heart. Why do I still lie as someone who's come under the grace of God and embraced this truth, most of the time it's a lie because of shame. Because I feel that sense of condemnation and I fear my sin being exposed and so I lie to hide it. And I think that's the most common way that people who know Christ and are trusting in him and are indeed forgiven continue to violate God's law and bear false witness. Continue to lie, to cover up shame lying because we're not content to be needy people. Lying because we're not content to need the grace of Jesus Christ. St. Augustine said long ago that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. This is what the commandments teach us. That we are called to learn to find our rest, to be content in Christ Jesus. And our hearts are going to continue to be restless until we find our rest in him. Our hearts are going to continue to lie and continue to covet and continue to seek satisfaction. Because we were built to be worshipers. We were built to seek this kind of satisfaction. And Christ teaches us in his life and by his death and through his resurrection That this kind of satisfaction can only be found through him. Because there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, you and I can rest in Jesus. We can be satisfied. Our hearts do not have to continue to be restless. We can, instead of lying, believe the truth. And when we do the glorious, beautiful reality of the way God has designed his gospel is that we ourselves then become true witnesses. We stop bearing false witness, which says, I don't need Jesus, or, or Jesus kind of got me over the hump, but now I've got to do it myself. We stop bearing that false witness and become true witnesses. Jesus called his people to be empowered by his spirit in Acts and to go out into all the world and bear witness. Tell the truth about who he is and what God has done. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's by an open statement of the truth that we would commend ourselves in everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This open statement of the truth that he gives, he says a little bit later in chapter 4, is that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's the truth that we live in Christ Jesus, that we treasure, that we love, that frees us 
from the lies and self-deception of having to be righteous on our own, of having to try to find our satisfaction apart from God. This truth that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's true of everyone in Christ Jesus, friends. I, I want that to be true for me, and I want that to be true for you. To trust in him this morning, bear that treasure in jars of clay, and he will be faithful to fulfill his promises. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to live the life we ought to have lived in a way that showed the absolute trust that you had for your Father, the absolute faithfulness of your Father to keep his promises to you, and that showed your holiness and beauty, and the the beauty of of a life lived, devoted to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. You have taught us how to love Jesus through your actions, through your life and death. And you have given us the spirit because of your resurrection to enable us to love like you loved. And so Jesus, I pray that you would help us to embrace the truth of the gospel and to be content with being weak vessels who are used to show your surpassing power. Lord, let us be like Paul who said, I will boast in my weakness because in my weakness the power of Christ rests upon me. Thank you, God, for choosing what is foolish in the eyes of the world to bring salvation and to show the the greatness of your son, Jesus. We praise you for your wise and good plan. And we ask you to help us rejoice as we move into the Lord's table. Amen.